Okay, there. This is Casey with the Kentucky Trauma Therapist podcast. I'm so excited to be presenting to you. This is my very first episode with having a guest, and her name is Missy. You're about to hear all about her and her story, and I tell you this it is a privilege and an honor to get the opportunity to hear her story, but even furthermore, to have her permission to share the story. The following is, a <laughs> it's really just a conversation. It's between two people who identify as being in recovery. It just doesn't look like the typical recovery 12 steps may speak of. When I sat down to even begin to edit the audio of what you're about to hear, well, <laughs> I just found that I couldn't really pull anything from the recording. And... I know that there's supposed to be some editing and I may not be a very good podcaster, but I do like to think of myself as a, as a pretty good therapist and Missy is a really great storyteller. So between the two of us, I feel like we cover in-depthly you know, and I, I don't think there's anything to cut out. Um, and furthermore, I think it would be doing Missy and her story a great disservice by pulling anything out. Her story is beautiful and it's raw and it's dirty and it really needed to be said. And it needs to be heard. So the audio you'll hear, it's not the most awesome audio in the world. Uh, I'm learning more and more uh, about podcasting and maybe what rooms produce the best audio quality. And I'm getting there. So a couple of content warnings before you head in. Uh, there's profanity. At times it is quite excessive profanity. We're going to talk about drug use, incarceration, 12-step programs, being near death, having suicidal ideations, addiction, eating disordered behaviors, and any other content warning you can probably imagine. Let's go ahead and slap it on this episode. Uh, one last thing before we hand it over to the interview portion. I just really want you to listen to this with the following concept that studies are currently reporting. Scientific studies and the research community are reporting that only 5 to 10% of people can maintain long-term sobriety in 12 steps programs. Uh, I do have a follow-up at the end that follows up with that information I just stated. And uh, I'm going to let us carry it away. All right. So uh, this is Casey with the Kentucky Trauma Therapist Podcast. I am so excited. Uh I'm my first guest, and it's super honorable. Like, I'm very excited that she agreed to do this. Um, do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, so my name is Missy, and I know Casey from... So we actually <laughs> met... <laughs> Which, yeah. So, um, no, no, it's a good story. It's a wholesome story. Okay. So it was actually a guy who lived in my building who um, was in AA and I was in AA. He threw a cookout for another person who was in AA. And because Casey is a therapist, she worked with all of these people at a treatment center. Yeah, we were all, we all worked in 12-step programs, and at that point in time, I was in two 12-step programs, one of which was OA. Devil winner. And I couldn't yeah. eat cake at that fucking party <laughs> because I was an Overeaters Anonymous, and I'm addicted to sugar. And But Casey made the best deviled eggs. <laughs> you had me at your deviled eggs. I swear to God, that is how our relationship blossomed. I can fuck up some deviled eggs. You can fuck them up. They were... <laughs> 
good. I will never forget them. I think I ate like eight. Did, did you, you get any? I don't think you got any, did you? I think I had some made at home. But okay. yeah. No, okay. I love I love a good double lash. <laughs> <laughs> I love the eat. Wait, 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 wait. Paprika or no paprika? No, we, we do paprika. Yeah, it's, yeah. But it's just for color, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like a nice little blossom on top. It makes you feel like it's going to be spicy, but it's not. Correct. Yeah, so yeah. it's cool, yeah. <laughs> So yeah, I met you when you were in, um, oh, and I guess to explain a little bit what the episode's about, we're talking about making the decision to leave a 12-step program. Whoa. Uh, That's heavy, isn't it? I got cold chills saying it. It sounds bad. It just sounds so scary. I know. But it sounds, it sounds so many things. There's so many feelings attached to that. Keep going. Well, like, I, I think, like, the thing that, so I, you know, I, me being, I have a history of being two different 12-step programs, not nearly as long of a history as, like, I know you or a lot of other people who yeah. have, and I, just that constant fear they tell you in the program, if you leave, if you step out of here, you will relapse, you will die, you will lose everything. Um, and so, like... And, like, let's make this clear. It's not like when you, like, wash up off the street in dirty underwear and stinky armpits like yeah it's then but it's even like even if you haven't had any alcohol or acted out sexually or whatever your thing or ate sugar whatever your thing that you're abstaining from no matter how long you abstain from it you still um will die you're still addicted to it and you'll still die yeah you don't recover if you leave yeah you you die if you leave um that group of humans because you will fall you're so susceptible to that substance yeah 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 i'm getting like i feel cringy talking about it like like i'm i'm doing something wrong it's like when you light up a cigarette like after you leave church or something i don't know like it just feels like i'm doing something like which just goes to show like how much they condition you you have to do this like it's so black and white well, I think for me a lot, and I would like to talk about my positive experience too. Yeah. You know, I do. I really do. But I will just to add to that thought that you just had was um, that um, you're conditioned to believe that like you're, you're a danger to yourself. Fuck. Right? Yeah. No, I don't know of a better way to put it. If yeah. you're left alone with yourself, yeah. then you will c- kind of combust. Self will run riot. Right. Right. <laughs> and so, and it's funny too, because like, okay, so, you know, in 12-step programs, you didn't do shit, right? God, higher power, but what they kind of really mean is Jesus, <laughs> you know? <laughs> But, then, but, but some people don't really mean that, but like some people really do. Um, yeah. <laughs> but so that person takes credit for everything that you do, right? Anything good that happens in your life, the reason that it happened is because your higher power is looking out for you because you are choosing to abstain from these things. For sure. And um, have a set behavior, right? Along yeah. with it. Um, yeah, and so if you don't, but, but that higher power isn't big enough to, to take care of you though, without the, the rooms instead, the rooms, the link, yeah. you know, yeah. but yeah, but the higher, you need the higher power and the rooms. 
Right. And I'm, I mean, I hear you. And I, I think I can sometimes be all or nothing thinking myself. You know, I was raised in rural Southern Baptist culture. So everything is black and white. And, and I always have to correct myself. So I'm really grateful that you pointed that out. Like there are good things that come from 12 steps programs. And I think about people that I see today that have like made it 20 plus years being sober and they have their life together. And it's super beautiful that they figured that out, like through 12 steps. I think my understanding is like, if 12 steps works for you, that's so cool. And if it doesn't, that's also okay because there's so many other options. So same. Yeah. Because, um, and I'll just like give you some of my background. Right, how I even like yes, it up like let's this. let's go ahead and start from the beginning. Okay, go ahead. I'm just checking to make sure it's still recording. Yeah, no, we're good. Keep okay. going. So, um, I guess my first, my first, the, the first substance that I fell in love with, I guess, was food, um, and. I mean, I don't want to say, like, why. Like, I'm not a therapist and all these things. But, like, I will tell you the conditions surrounding that obsession, right? So, my mother, um, she had my me and my sister consecutively within a year apart from each other. Holy fuck. She was on birth control both times. Are you the youngest or the oldest? Youngest. Oh. Um, <laughs> Right, um, yeah. <laughs> and 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 just to to be honest, she really didn't want either of us. Yeah, like, and, and it wasn't like I hate you or anything like that. Like, or I don't love you. It was just she was very clear on the fact that there were other things that she wanted to do at that point in time in her life. And can you imagine if you felt that way? You wanted to focus on your career or, you know, you wanted to, because her and my father were married, but they weren't ready to have kids. Well, like, I'm going to even pause you right there. Just as a, a therapist, you know, we talk about generational trauma and like how things are inherited in the body and through our DNA and like all of the things. So I, I think of, you know, if I'm pregnant with my second child in a year and, and like, I, like I'm going to have two kids within a year apart. And, and you just didn't want to be a mom. Uh, right then anyways and so like the ripple effect in how that impacts maybe like aspects of parenting or or attitudes while being pregnant and like behaviors well, made for, I, i'm sure i'm sure right and like you know i feel like i could go off on this whole tangent like but what, what so what i'm saying is is that the, okay so the environment that i was born into was set up like this and then also my mother um she's laxatives when we were little so like she wouldn't take us anywhere like she would she tried to take us places but it was really hard for her because she would binge and then she would take the laxatives and like she has told me you know like I couldn't leave the house because you know I had to go to the bathroom and so that's the environment that uh -huh. me and my sister were raised in yeah and I remember my sister being really little and she was chubby. She was just a chubby kid. And I remember family members and kids at school making fun of her a lot. And so, like, it, it registered this message inside of me that, like, if you don't want people to, if you want the world to be kind to you, you must be thin. <laughs> and, um, yeah. And so, any, like, food, 
meant that you that's how you got fat and so food was a bad thing and it was shameful and if you ate it you were super weak um and so I can remember like on a Saturday or Sunday morning I remember waking up before my parents and being so excited I still had to crawl on the cabinets like I couldn't get food out just from reaching it like I had to crawl up there and I would sneak food out yeah and so, and then I developed an eating disorder in my teens. Um, soon after that, experimented with drugs and alcohol. And so fast forward, how many years later? Um, I was 27 or 28 whenever I got sober. I think I was 28. Maybe I, I don't remember. It was 2013. Anyways, here nor there. Um, it was a long, long road, right? It was a long yeah. road, long haul. And... Um, I, at the end of it, was full-blown heroin addict, like, you know, prostituted my body. I was homeless. Like, I mean, it was a fairly low bottom. Yeah. You know? Can I pause so, you? Yeah. Like, by this point, how many people have talked to you about 12-step programs? Okay, yeah. So, good question. So, my first introduction to 12-step programs was actually whenever I was in high school. Oh my God. Okay. I, yeah. was, I was a junior in high school and I went to my very first treatment center. I was taken out of school and sent, it didn't last very long. Um, but I was introduced to 12 step programs through that. And then whenever I got out of that, uh, I met a girl who, um, she, we went to high school together. She had just moved there from Ohio. She was, a kindred spirit and her parents had already been taking her to AA meetings. So I would go with her and her family sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and then after that, of course it was just, you know, every few years or whatever, I went to a different treatment center. Yeah. But they were all 12 step focused. All of them. What were your thoughts on 12 steps before you jumped in? What do you mean? What jumped in? So, so like you're going with your friend and her family to the, the 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 AA meetings. What were your thoughts on AA? Like so as a think, kid. Yeah, at that age. <laughs> like, how did you interpret? Which just to clarify. I for, wondered if I might meet some cool motherfuckers. Do you know what I'm I do. Honestly, I, I mean, do. I remember there was this guy there who worked at this like super upscale salon it was very upscale for you know the town I grew up yeah. in and um I mean he was just fucking fabulous you know he did gray <laughs> hair and you know he was just fucking cool and um and then like he ended up murdering his business partner in the salon <laughs> right and he like, was, it's not funny I mean it's just like go ahead sorry. he was in AA meetings and that was very cool um do you know, I don't really know that I processed feelings towards AA as much as I processed feelings towards alcoholism. Like, yeah. and I'll just be honest with you, in my brain, in my mind, it was still very cool, right? Very seductive, very... Like um, to be an addict was... Fast and fun and, you know, exciting yeah. and... You were a druggie, but, you know, you just didn't have a care in the world. I mean, it just, it looked fascinating. And it looked, it looked, you know, I just thought they were like Kate Moss. 
I'm, you're gonna have to educate me. She was a supermodel in the 90s. Okay. And then also had popular in the early 2000s. She was like, kind of set the mood for the heroin chic era. era. Wow, okay. In the early 90s, the okay. super thin model. She kind of yeah. she started that whole thing. And um, she was a party girl. She was yeah. a super big party girl. She got caught on camera snoring coke at a club. Yeah. And that was like big celebrity news. Yeah. So, yeah, that came off. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, so this is teenage. Okay. So, I didn't mean to cut you off with that question. You were, you, you said you were probably like 2013 ish. Um, you got sober. Right. Right. Doing the 12 steps. Did. So. What, so you're talking about, I'm so sorry. I'm not, I'm not trying to interrupt. It's just my, my brain sometimes works faster than my mouth, but like you, you have this history of like, oh wow, there's this identity that's sexy and alluring to, to be in this, this, um, fast lane. And now all of a sudden it's like, I'm turning in my, my, my badge and gun and like, all right. Yeah. But life beat me up so bad. Damn. You know what I mean? I, I got do. beat to shit. You know, it was really, really bad. I mean, and to be honest, um, so after that first trip to the treatment center, I did not, definitely did not become a person in recovery. But so my thoughts on it were that I saw a lot of kids who were, um, they didn't come from the same type of home. They didn't have the same type of opportunities. And I think I was at least self-aware enough to like know that. Can you explain that for like, there were kids there who didn't have parents who like wanted them to come home. Yeah. You know, there yeah. were parent kids there with parents who like, they didn't visit them. Yeah. And here I have, you know, my parents like literally fighting to save my fucking life. Yeah. I've got support. I've got financial means to like do something with my life if I want to, right? I'm 17 years old. I could go to college. You know, I could try to find another career. I could, you know, if I will do anything productive in life, I have this whole team behind me that yeah. wants to help me create that. And I understood that. Yeah. And so my goal whenever I left that treatment center was to not use or drink until I at least graduated high school. Because I knew at the rate I was going, I wasn't going to graduate. And I wanted to just at least graduate. Right? Yeah. So, so I swore off. And that lasted, I think, two or three weeks. My swearing off. With that all or nothing thinking. Right, right. That, that okay, I lived at a 10 and living at, so I, like, I think. The I, only thing that must work is living at a zero. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Like learning to live at a five isn't in our vocabulary when we come from these huge extremes of all or nothing thinking. Yeah, and I wasn't capable of being that person at that time in my life because, like, I hadn't suffered severe enough consequences. I was 17. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. like I didn't, like, even though what was happening was dangerous and unhealthy, it hadn't truly caused me consequences. Sure. You know, so it just, it didn't make sense for me to, like, bite. Yeah. And so, 
and you know that was in 2002 I didn't get sober till 2013 you've got you know 11 years there and like I think I went so fucking hard that everything happened fucking fast because the all or nothing is so if I live at a 10 I don't nicely and slowly come down to a one it's like Okay, like we're having a party tonight and I'm at a seven or eight. What would make tonight better? Oh, an eight ball of Coke sounds super. Yes. And while we're at it, let's get yes. um, let's get a bottle of tequila. Yeah. Um, and then guess what? I wake up tomorrow at a fucking one because I lived at a 10 last night. Right. And now I can't find my underwear and I'm waking up in a pool of vomit. And who the fuck is this guy laying next to me? <laughs> right, 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 right. We use house am I at? Where is my car? Whose jizz is on my thigh? You know what I mean? That's it. That's how that's how it goes. God. But yeah, but so so but by the time that the emotional consequences mattered to me, I was physically dependent. Yeah. You know, so yeah. that happened too. And so, I mean, it's true. No one casually uses heroin. No one just <laughs> nods out on a Friday night to take the edge off. You know? Yeah. That's not the way that drug works. No. So. How did you get introduced to heroin? Because you, you said alcohol earlier, and I just, you know, to connect the dots here, how did we get from, from maybe what we were doing in high school to heroin. So I'll tell you, a lot of what I was doing in high school was cocaine. Dude, you went opposite direction. <laughs> right, 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 right. Well, so here, so there was, I didn't fit in in high school. Sure. Or I thought I didn't. You know, I'm, I still can tell you I'm not sure of the reality of yes. the situation. But like, you know, I tried to play basketball in middle school and I just, you know, it wasn't even that I sucked at it so bad. It was just that all of those girls had, like, been playing basketball since they were five. Yeah. And I was, like, a sixth grader, and I was like, that looks like fun. Yeah. I'll do that. Yeah. And so, of course, you know, like, um, that didn't, you know, last long. Like, I played all through middle school, and I enjoyed it. But, um, yeah, it wasn't something that, like, I knew I didn't. I probably could have made the high school team. But I think I also knew I would have had to work really fucking hard. Yeah. And I was also really excited to do high school things. Yeah. So I didn't want to work that hard for it. It was fun, but, you know. Anyways, um, what, what was I talking about? Oh, wow. I was asking, how did we get from... Okay, okay. Like, okay, now okay. I know. How did we get from cocaine to heroin? Okay, so... So I'm in high school and, you know, I don't play sports, so I'm not in that clique. I want so desperately to be a part of the popular kids clique, but like, it just doesn't happen easily for me. Do you know what I mean? It just doesn't happen easily. You I'm not saying it doesn't happen at all, but it's never easy when it is. You said a word earlier that I love to fucking highlight and you, you hinted at it. I'm probably going to butcher exactly what you said, but you were like... I don't know if it was perception or reality that I didn't fit in. Yeah. But, like, perception versus reality is one of my favorite things. I'm going to go on, like, a three-second right here. It's the DSM-4. I think they changed it in the DSM-5. But in the DSM-4 that we use for diagnosing, 
it, a part of a PTSD diagnosis used to be either real, or, no, it is in the DSM-5, it says real or threatened. And I want to say in DSM-4, the language was either real or perceived threat of injury, harm of life, etc. Because here's the difference. Like, your brain doesn't know the difference between perception and reality. And let's also side note that by this point in time, I'm already in therapy and have been diagnosed with several, several different diagnoses. I don't know which ones are true or which ones aren't. <laughs> no, you know? I do know what you're talking about there. Um, yeah. So, yeah. So, okay, but so, yeah, so then, yeah, I get into high school and, um, you know, I don't necessarily fit in anywhere and, um, but there was this, basically, it was a group of men. I don't even want to say guys because they were fucking not in school anymore. They were older and they were fucking gangsters or wannabe gangsters or whatever. They were dope dealers. That's what they were. And this is E-Town? Yeah. E-Town, Kentucky. You know? <laughs> but, yeah. but they're drug dealers is what yeah. they are. And yeah. so, um, you know, I'm in high school and like, Honestly, looking back, like, I was really fucking cute. You know, I was so cute, but I never knew it. Mm -hmm. But I'll tell you, I did feel validated with them. And it was things like the fact that, like, I remember, like, cocaine, I think, is something that was very easily accessible for them. That was, it was like, it was just popular at that time. It was before the big thing of meth. Yeah. You know, and it was still just good coke. Like, it wasn't shitty coke. It was good coke. Correct. Sure. And so, um. They would. They were just totally willing to go get me some coke, you know. Like even if they had to drive to Louisville, yeah. And it was like they appreciated being around me. And I even remember like sitting at this guy's house. I've never told this story to anybody ever. And oh I, my God! Are, do you want us to pause? No, because it's not deep. Okay. It just that never seemed valuable until now. But oh, like, wow. Okay. I remember sitting, we were in the fucking projects. I mean the projects. And I'm sitting in this guy's house and we are smoking the funkiest fucking weed I've ever had in my life. And he looks over at me and says, you're the prettiest thing I've seen around here in a long time. And I remember that felt so good. I was validated by a group. So, but the group yeah. I was validated by were yeah. the drug dealers yeah. and the people who drank and smoked and that's what they did, you know, and that's kind of what life was. Yeah. And I appreciated that. And so, yeah, cocaine was popular at the time and I just liked to check out. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I just like to check out no matter how. And so... But, but so my drug use escalated very quickly and it, man, it, it was everything, you know, I had a problem with alcohol and, um, also had a problem with puffing. Mm-hmm. I was a huge mm -hmm. huffer. Yeah. Whippet cans. Whippet or... cans. Yeah. So, yeah. and I also really love to smoke crack. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so in my early twenties, um, I just went through a horrific fucking breakup. I had my heart, my first heartbreak. Yeah. My very first heartbreak. And I was just fucking fucked up all the time. And um, I went to jail. It wasn't my first arrest, but it was the first time I was honestly in trouble. And I went to jail for several months. And I got out. And so while I'm sitting in jail, right, what registers in my brain is that, you know, 
smoking crack will get you in trouble. It wasn't that doing drugs would get you in trouble. It was smoking crack will get you in trouble. I already knew, like, I would pass through phases with drugs. With alcohol, it was like, I like to drink, but I understood I couldn't drive and go to work drunk. So I needed something that would let me function. Yeah. So, you know, then you, you move on to, like, coke or whatever. Um, and so, yeah, I got out of jail and knew that I couldn't smoke crack anymore. And I started working at this restaurant. And one night, this person gave me that sold they sold me some like hydrocodones and I took them and I felt fucking alive for the first time in my entire life and then I remember a couple of days later after taking these pills you know several times and really enjoying them and I was at work I worked at a restaurant and I told my manager that I needed to leave. It was like a Friday night. We were super busy. I said I needed to leave because I thought I was having a panic attack. And she checked my pulse. What had really happened is that I took fucking Xanaxes and I was fucking tired and I didn't want to work. And so she checked my pulse and she was like, you ain't having a panic attack. You're barely fucking breathing. And she took me in the bathroom and she gave me um like it was morphine for sure I know I got morphine for the first time it was like serious painkillers damn and I did them and I have never been so in love with being alive as that yeah and that's how the opiates happened I like cold chills like just hearing you Sorry about that. Yeah, like that ultimate, like that is the ultimate tennis of 10. Yeah. You know, and, and uh, something that I applaud 12 steps on is recognizing we will continue to chase that first high. Yeah. And yeah. we won't ever get it. Because the truth of the matter is, is that I was addicted to opiates for a solid, I want to say six years. It could have been seven, it could have been eight, but somewhere in that range. Yeah. Um, and when I said, I mean, I took opiates every fucking day of my life for that time yeah. span. And, um, that feeling that I was just talking to you about, I think it lasted probably like 30 days. It was like, it's like a new relationship with a person. The honeymoon phase. It was everything's beautiful. Super intense. Everything feels yeah. so good. The colors are brighter in your life. Everything is so good. Yeah. And that's, but it, it felt even better than that, really. Yeah. You know? I don't know. I don't think with substances to that degree, but with behavioral things, I, I I'm I feel like I do know. I mean my version of knowing will never be the exact same as anyone else's, just like right. you know. But I think I mean it was my like literally I dated people because they in some way, shape, or form made my access to it easier. Yeah. Or even if they were just accepting it. Like, I always chose a partner based on that. I chose where I worked. I fucking waited tables for years because that cash on every day coming in, you know, I mean, I couldn't live without it. I had to have the cash in my hand that day because I had to go re-up every day, you know? So, I mean, it was just like if I had a relationship with you, if I talked to you, if I spoke to you, if I got out of bed in the morning, um, if I showed up to work that day, 
you know, what did I have? Did I have the dope to get me through work? I mean, every single decision I ever made revolved around that. And to sit here and tell you that I've ever experienced a feeling as intense and great as that would be like, I think it's okay to say it. Do you know? Yeah. You don't have to say that like my love for my child is more intense than that feeling. It was fucking intense. I sold everything I had, including self-respect, to keep it around. So, I mean, it was fucking intense. So, we eventually walk into... Do you, do you remember what your first meeting was? Like, I, like you're, you know, for being sober and, like, like, that first meeting of, like, here I am. Like, what, do you know what exactly got you to, I mean, you'd been to plenty of meetings before, but I think what I'm trying to get at is that first meeting that you actually stayed sober from. So, well, here's actually what's really funny. So, this is a good story, and I've told it so many times throughout my life and program. Um, But I was in jail, and I had gotten arrested. Me and my then-boyfriend had both gotten arrested, and we were in big-time trouble. We were robbing his family's pharmacies is what we were doing. Yeah. We were in big trouble. And um, when they, when the police finally arrested us um, after like watching us for months, yeah, you know, yes. all that shit, gathering yeah. whatever information. Um, so I asked, I had had this attorney that he was my defense attorney for like 10 years because, like, I got arrested for the first time when I was 18 years old. And so, for a 10-year time span, I just kept getting arrested. And so, I had this attorney, and he was a really good attorney. And so, whenever I got arrested, I asked if I could speak to him. His name was Shane. And he came in there that day, fucking ball cap on, like, but he was now the district attorney. He was going to prosecute me. <gasps> oh, my God, that's unethical, Right. Well, he was, no, I mean, he was now the the district attorney had been voted into the position. But the guise of you thinking that he's there to to help But he was. But he was. Okay. Okay. I mean, I asked to speak to him. Yeah. I asked. Did you know, like. That he was the district attorney? I did know. I did know. Um. And so, and that, well, see, I had moved away to Louisville and I'd lived for, in Louisville for um, a few years. Okay. And so I hadn't seen him in a few years, but I, I think I did know that he had, was the district attorney. He had just always helped me so much, you know, yeah. that it was like, I need to speak to him. Yeah. And, um, so, but I, I did go to jail that day. It was the 4th of July weekend. I'll never forget it because I was so sick and I had liquid coming out of every hole of my body. And for the 4th of July meal, they brought a hamburger, a hot dog, baked beans, french fries, and a slice of cake. And I hadn't ate in days, and it was the nastiest food I'd ever seen in my fucking life because I was so sick. And they had put me in this cell with a turtle suit. I didn't have, I didn't wear the turtle suit. Wait a second. I haven't heard of a turtle suit, I don't feel like. Okay, I need to clarify, right? (laughs) So... A turtle suit is this green padded foam that they take your clothes away from you so you can't use anything to hurt yourself. And so it's a big padded suit and they put you in it. So if you threaten to hurt yourself or like you do like terrible behavior that's really insane. You know, people like wipe shit on windows in jail. I mean, people are fucking crazy. So 
they said they put me in the turtle suit because they put me in a pod and they kept when you go to jail like within the first few days you have to be assessed by medical staff mm. it's there's no point in it and it doesn't matter if there's something <laughs> wrong with you because like they're not going to help you <laughs> you literally have to write if you have a headache and you need an ibuprofen you have to put in a medical request that they takes them about you know 72 hours to see you so the headache's fucking long gone. Anyways, um, but that's jail. That's jail America. So, so anyways, um, yeah. So they put me in a turtle suit because I refused to go get checked in by medical. But I only, I refused because I felt so bad. Like I couldn't walk. So they put me in this turtle suit. I don't wear the turtle suit, so I'm just stripped naked. With this other person in there who's trying to eat their 4th of July tray. Because that's a damn good tray in jail. Yeah, sure. Yeah. And they're trying to eat theirs and my tray. And I'm just struck naked, shitting myself. Yeah. You know? And, um, and I got out a few days later. They took me in only on charges for failure to appear for Jefferson County, which is Louisville. Yeah. And that's all they charged me with that day. Yeah. But it took a few days for them to OR me because it was 4th of July weekend. Anyways, um, so I get out. My dad picks me up, and he takes me to Shane's office. And Shane says that... And that's the attorney, the district attorney. Yep. Yep. He says, I've been helping you kill yourself for the past 10 years. Today that's over. You are going to go to a long-term treatment facility. And you're going to do drug court Mm -hmm. and you're going to stay sober or I will make sure you sit in jail for as long as you possibly can. And he gave me a few weeks to go check myself into jail. Um, You mean treatment? No, I don't go back to jail, dude, for months. I don't know. I was in a lot of trouble. That would have been nice if I could have just chilled (laughs) till the bed came open. I was still in a lot of trouble. Um, just because the charges didn't reflect it at the time, I was in a lot of trouble. Um, so anyway, so I turned myself in and like, literally I would, I would go to court and they would offer me exactly what he wanted me to do, which was to go to long-term treatment and drug court. And I would refuse it. And the public defender would come back with a new offer that was for more jail time. He kept adding onto it every time I said no. To up the ante. To get me to say yes. And I finally said yes. But it wasn't even because I didn't want to go to prison. It was honestly because. Like. There was just. What else was I going to do? I could just go to prison. But the. I mean. And then I'm. What? Then then what? I'll get out and I'll do the same thing. And this is going to keep happening. Do you. Do you think that a part of you wanted to reject that because it was like okay cool you want me to give up my entire identity you want me to give up no no it was no it was because i didn't believe it was possible for me to be a sober and successful person do you think that's because people have set that thought process up is to be a successful person after you have this long history of addictive like behavior the only option is 100 sobriety 100 sobriety you had to be completely teetotal sober on everything I think I was so sick at that point that I think, I don't know. 
this is a really hard for me to like honestly make a statement on because you know for so many years I believed that had I not had a not intervened at that moment in my life then you know I would have died but there's also a part of me that looks back on that and says like you know but possibly I was such a sick person and I was so miserable and I wanted help so bad that, I mean, I wanted it so bad. And that's where AA, I think, takes the credit away from you. Okay. Yeah. The person and me, because it was like, yeah, I was in extreme amount of pain, but I was also ready to just try something else. So had they, had I been sent to some type of treatment center that instilled other things you know, but I will say this is, would those things have worked? I mean, maybe. I don't know. I can't say yes or no because that wasn't the treatment I received. I know. And I, I'm going to just interject that my experience I felt like was pretty similar. Like it, it kept getting hinted at, like more and more dangerous things were happening. Um, And it was this idea of, you know, I told myself like, okay, if it doesn't get better on this exact date, if I go do this behavior Yet again, if I interact with this behavioral addiction yet again, and I feel like killing myself afterwards, I'm going to go to a program. I'm going to go to a meeting this afternoon. And, and that's what I did. And, and, and you know, the, it's this idea of like, do I think it saved me at that point in time? Yes. Do I think there could have been other things that could have saved me at that point in time? Yes. But that was the one that was most available. And I will forever be grateful. And on the plus side, because... Like, one of the benefits of, like, these 12-step programs, I mean, they're rampant, you know? Like, yeah. And not every 12-step program is everywhere, but, like, even if your town doesn't have that particular 12-step program, mm -hmm. there's so much easy access to it. Mm -hmm. And it's just so widespread and so known about that it was, like, I think what I had that I really needed was I needed something that lasted more than 30 fucking days. I needed something, yeah. <laughs> I needed something that yeah. helped me rearrange, like, I was so fucking, my life was so bizarre, like, I literally think I went six years without drinking a cup of water, I don't remember ever, I drank Mountain Dew, it's just what I drank, I'm from Kentucky, <laughs> I'm out, <laughs> but seriously, you know, so it's like, I didn't even have the simple life skill of, like, just being a like drinking a glass of water here and there. I mean, it's not bad. Like, I'm not laughing because of the situation. Because, like, how many else's people's story looks just like that? Right, right. And, like, we're not calling a spade a spade. It's like there's something morally wrong with you. Well, how about, like, I didn't get these skills somewhere I, along the way. Well, and I didn't even, like, but I wasn't even able to, like, function, like, in the professional world. Sure. Like, I had no job or anything like that. Like, my situation was pretty dire. Sure. And so, you like, with in, in my circumstances, there's no way you could have just held me, you know, in this treatment center for 30 days and yeah. said, let me teach you to love yourself and to, like, you know, try healthy new behaviors and then send, send me back out into the world. Yeah. I need a continuation of something. And AA yeah. provided that. And so, like... Yeah. Like, where I'm at today is that, like, something I'm diving into now is shadow work. And so, AA started this path of healing for me. 
And it's like for a long time, I used the 12 steps, you know, and then I started using other things like be it therapy, be it law of attraction, be it yoga, you know, whatever. Like I started using other things to help me heal as well. And so it's gotten me to this path where like, okay, so now I'm looking into the shadow work. Yeah. How cool. Yeah. And, And that, that all sprung from my time in AA, my interest in personal growth, right? And like being the best version of me, like all of those things spurred from 12 steps. And so thank God for that. And I think like you just said that so beautifully. I mean, I, I, cause I hear you when it's like, cause I think that's where I really get at. Um, you know, it's, I think 12 steps is a, a beautiful entryway because you get to see the evidence of, wow, there's all these other people who look similar to me and they get to have unconditional love with one another. And that feels really cool. But I think, unfortunately, sometimes in my story, I end up seeing conditional love happen in 12 step programs. Well, and see, because the problem is, is, is it's this beautiful spiritual thing program if you will even though I hate that word um why do you hate that word (laughs) because I've been what is called deprogramming (laughs) yeah where it's like you know instead of like instead of me saying like I'm gonna practice principles today I say oh I'm gonna tell the truth in this scenario you know yeah my, someone just asked me an uncomfortable question yeah. and instead of bullshitting them or not answering them, I'll be honest and vulnerable and show up as my authentic self. Yeah. Right. But there's so much language and lingo. Yeah. There's so much of that shit that we don't even realize <laughs> because we've been so deep in it. Dude, I'm dying because I can't tell you how many clients I use the phrase, keep your side of the street clean. Yep. Yep. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yes. No, I like. I'm all about preaching, which I mean, I think is like the the deprogrammed version of that would be just be accountable for your bullshit. Let them be accountable for theirs. Because here's the thing, for me, for me, right? Okay, yeah. So it's the spiritual thing that is ran by totally imperfect human beings. Oh. Right, and so it gets super messy. Yeah. It's not what it was intended to be. Yeah. And, um, yeah, shit, shit just, it happens, you know? But I, I cut you off. You were saying you had made the remark of, uh, the, the program. Oh, I, I had said unconditional love. It feels like unconditional love. And then once you get into the nitty gritty of 12 step programs, sometimes you do see conditional love. Yeah, for sure, because it's ran by humans, right, who are absolutely imperfect. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I I know um, I had a friend, I think, uh, who was working on, you know, OA, which is Overeaters Anonymous, um, and their sponsor, when they, this person relapsed on sugar, and their sponsor's response was, uh well once you've been free of the toxins of sugar in your body for 72 hours we can talk then 
Yeah. So that, and that's <laughs> such a loaded fucking comment for me. Because let me clarify, so I also spent years trying to fucking do OA. I could never do it because it's not even something a human should really strive to do. I have so many. (laughs) Can we just do a whole episode on OA? Yes. (laughs) Yes, just a whole episode on OA. So, but anyways. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So, yeah, she was drunk on sugar. And the intoxication lasted 72 hours. But that's what they think. That's what they say. But anyways, yeah. So, um, but I think, let me explain to you what happened, my process of leaving. Oh. Yeah. So here's what led up to me leaving AA. And this is like, it's long and it's a process. And I don't think anybody really understands that. Like, that I have never been able to vocalize it to someone. So, I'll break it down a little more thoroughly for you. So, I get into 12-step. I go to this treatment center. I'm there for seven months. Um, We go to AA meetings. We have AA meetings inside the treatment center. And so, um, and because I've been introduced to AA so many times, like, I know that, like, you know, most people in my area who want to get sober go to AA which thinking back is a little slightly weird because of the fact that um so many of these people ending up in these rooms they have drug problems not alcohol problems and so like can you clarify the difference between why people end up choosing to go to AA instead of NA even if they have drug problems? You know, I don't even know if it's something that I fully understand. I think a lot of times it's because they're court ordered to make these okay, so yeah, I was court ordered to make meetings. Um there was narcotics anonymous in our area, but just to be honest, I mean there there just wasn't as much of it. The community wasn't as big. It wasn't as big. There wasn't as many meetings. There wasn't as many people to, like, get to know. I mean, there just, it seemed to be more beneficial to go to AA. There was more people. They'd been sober a really long time. Um, Anyways, so, yeah, so I'm in AA, and, um, you know, so many things happened to me in those first few years that it's like, this is where the shadow work comes in of like, not just telling you everything I loved about it, but looking back and like really calling everything what it was Mm -hmm. like, because my memory of it is that I was so fucking happy, (laughs) you know, is that I was so in love with the program and the people in it. But let me tell you, let me take you back for a second. Whenever I was in high school, I get out of rehab and my best friend in the entire world since kindergarten fucking dies. And it's a long story and I won't get into it, but there were like reasons for me to believe that like it was my fault. Okay. And, or to question it. Yeah. And, um, I remember she died. It was the summer before we went into our senior year of high school. And I begged my parents to please not make me go back to that school. Yeah. Because I just didn't want to, like, 
be that girl who like had cancer on her forehead and everybody couldn't stop staring and that was probably a lot of just my own shit sure but I was just afraid people were gonna stare at me and talk about me and feel sorry for me yeah and I didn't want to go back so bad and my parents were like no you have one year left you know you're going back so I did and literally the most popular girls in the entire fucking high school befriended me and like they were inviting me to their girls nights they were taking me to parties like i mean it was like i couldn't really believe it was happening to me and then i could feel them it only lasted for a few months and i could feel them starting to like kick me out of the group and I remember we were out driving around one night and it was like a last ditch effort for them to think I was cool. I asked them if they wanted to go see where my friend had crashed her car at. Yeah. And they did, but they really did it. It freaked them out. Yeah. And then I told them that I had been drinking and I was the one driving and they were super not cool with that. But anyway, they never spoke to me again. And it was just a really, really hard thing to happen at that time in my yeah. life. It was like, I had like, and so desperately needed this sense of community. And I had it for a little bit and then I was rejected. And it was really hard. And so I think that was something that hurt me so deeply. That level of abandonment. Well, because I was grieving while it was happening, too. You know, so it was really fucking hard for me. And when I got to AA, there was this group of people <laughs> that would have me. Yeah. If I agreed to think certain things, which included God, just to be fair, right? Yeah. Or a doorknob. Stop saying that. You mean God. <laughs> Can you do you care to explain? I know, but I don't know if everybody understands what that. I know what you mean. That's twelve step lingo. Like you're supposed to find, you know, your your own conception of a higher power, and they say it can be a doorknob. Yeah, because a doorknob has more power than you because it can open a door. But the doorknob is actually not more powerful than me, and that's not true. Yeah, the analogy is not good. Um, but so anyway, so yeah, but if I can believe in God and, um, you know, maintain total abstinence and attend meetings and say yes, when people need me to help them do something, um, then, and kind of, and if I place this group first in my life, then I, um, am welcome and accepted and invited places. And so... I was a part of something for the first time in my life. And I met some really fucking amazing human beings, too. Oh, yeah. And um, everything was so good. And then I got into a relationship with this guy who pretended to be sober, but he wasn't really sober. But he was like... I Okay, let me say this. I read recently that every single person at least has one person that they'll never actually 
all the way be over. <laughs> and so I think this was him. And I don't, it was just fucking magnetic. I actually yeah. had had a, a psychic tell me that he and I fucking survived Auschwitz together in a different life. Oh, God. No, I'm yeah. sorry. We didn't survive. We died. Oh, okay. We yeah, died. Yeah. Oh. And so it was just this incredible soul connection. And yeah. um, he was everything I didn't need and everything I wanted. Yeah. And he, it was so bad and it was so toxic. But so I have this, this sponsor who, you know, she's been sponsoring me for at this point in time, like three years. It's a long time for a spawn. I mean, you and know. that I talk to consistently yeah. and she is the first human being on this earth that I think I've ever formed a true connection with. Yeah. She's the first person I ever told everything to. She's the first person I felt comfortable sharing who I was with. And I got in this relationship and like she totally, what my version of is abandoned me. But she just, you know, she pushed away from me and pushed away from me until, I mean, she really left me with no choice, but to what they, they call it firing. That's when yeah. you stop working with a sponsor and get a new sponsor. So mm -hmm. anyway, um, and you know, she was, I'm pleased with my behavior, my inability to let go of this guy and this relationship, which, I mean, cool, fine, well, you know, but really, I mean, the boundaries get crossed because what we're here to talk about is alcoholism and not using or drinking. <laughs> and, and, and what happened, and, and so what happens is these people tend to, we end up micromanaging each other's lives. We tell people who they can and can't date, mm -hmm. when they can and can't date. You know, I mean, I remember, you know, having to ask, like, what's an appropriate date? Like, you know? I, yeah. Because Netflix and chill's not okay. Like, they need to take you out. And, and, and you know what? I learned so much fucking self-respect. Mm -hmm. And, like, mm -hmm. in that program. I mean, there's there's so much good and there's so much bad. But I don't want to call anything good or bad. It just is. But it's like anything in this world. It's a mixture of things that we like and things we don't like and things we can use and things we can't. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I, I'm right there with you. I, I, I was for six months of uh, the first 12 Steps program I joined. And my husband and I were together at the time. And uh, we were talking about like looking into foster care and adopting and I was telling someone that I was in the program with like oh my god I'm so excited like we're gonna start the classes in January we could probably have our first kid like in April and I've always wanted to be a mom mm -hmm. and they were like well did you run that by your sponsor because you really shouldn't do anything major in your first year of sobriety and I remember like just the wind being knocked out of me like motherhood is being held over my head yeah, and here's the thing too, Casey, is that like for the, my experience mostly is that like, yeah, first year of sobriety, that's one thing. But yeah, but what they really mean is forever. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> Seriously. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's not that. So yeah, and that's weird, isn't it? That the decision on whether you want a parent or not isn't between you and your husband. It's between 
the group. <laughs> and I think that was helpful and healthy for me in the very beginning because I didn't know how to operate. And you didn't know what was good decision or what was a bad decision. But totally, you know, period, point blank, that relationship didn't have anything to do with my sobriety. But yeah. they, they convinced me that it did. Mm -hmm. You know, and like their thought was like, oh, if you know, you're in a lot of pain, you'll eventually drink or use. But, and, and it kept me in this place where I was afraid to be alone with myself. I remember having panic attacks walking through grocery stores or going into like Walgreens because they sold liquor. But guess what, Casey? Like, I don't, I didn't even want to drink. I never even really liked to drink. <laughs> so isn't it fucking weird mm -hmm. that like I'm having trouble being near a bottle of tequila? Because, and it wasn't because I, I thought that the bottle was going to like open up and like I was just going to lose my shit and just start chugging it. Even though I didn't even want to drink. Mm -hmm. Because they, they, the way they explained this to me as this disease, you know, is that that's how it works. And and today my perspective is that I don't think it's a disease or a choice. I think both of those words just oversimplify something that's nowhere near that simple. But I do think it's a learned coping mechanism. And so where I'm coming from today is that, like, I'm also, I'm not the same person that showed up at AA meetings. There you go. That's not, yeah. I'm not her. Yeah. I really can't even identify with her. I mean, I remember the things I've been through and the things I've lived through, but who I am as a human being and as a woman is like so much greater. There's so much evolution that has occurred. Yeah. I and mean, there was nothing wrong with her, but it sure. was just like, she was still in the midst of this struggle. And it's like, I literally, um, you know, I'm at a place in my life where like, I can like, communicate with my job and say what I need and ask for what I want. And, you know, I can, um, function throughout the day and have healthy communication and conversations with my clients throughout the day. And I mean, I'm just, just a different, I'm way more healed version of myself. Absolutely. And so like, you know, I just don't have this desire to like be checked out when shit hits the fan. Yeah. And I think some of it's because I understand the enormous benefit of the pain. Yeah. And what happens when we can let pain in or sit with it or just hold space for ourselves in that moment that we're and, feeling whatever it is we're feeling and not invalidate like, like i think that the, the most impressive thing ever is like learning how to validate yourself because guess what if if you don't validate my like let's say i have something bad happen to me and i get told well it's not that big of a deal you just need to get over it that's what i do i turn into 16 year old casey fixing to show up to the trailer park and i'm going to slash your goddamn tires like like this this rage and if i don't know how to deal with that rage i introduce unhealthy coping skills to help me numb the fuck out 100%. If you don't let me touch into my emotions and experience things and feel them and tell me that, like, I'm not crazy, then I have to check out of this place for a minute. A revelation I've had this past week is that something I think that they 100% need to teach in schools is, like, the ability to, like, self-soothe. <laughs> yes. And whether that looks like breathing exercises or whatever, like, you know, something that I feel like as a kid, I didn't understand, and I see it play out with other people, too, <laughs> is that, like, just because your ice cream is melting 
doesn't mean that you get to take it out on the entire world, right? So like things aren't going my way, but I still have to show up for fucking work. Mm -hmm. I still have to be kind to my friends. I don't go off on the mailman or the pizza guy because my fucking feelings are hurt about something. Mm -hmm. And I never had any type of tool on how to navigate through disappointment or just life. Navigate through fucking life. I didn't get it. You know, that's so beautiful you're saying that. And in my recent revelation, I think over the past couple of years in my own trauma work with my own trauma therapist is like, there's an expiration date to pain. And my childhood trauma story did not express that. And so now as an adult, guess what? I never learned how to self-soothe. So when something bad happens, I find out my friend lied about me or, um, I don't know, uh, they're, they just called, they're coming to the house to, you know, I haven't paid the water bill, et cetera, whatever. I don't know how to self-soothe or self-regulate or how to problem solve or how to history of not knowing how. So guess what? I need to tap out of reality. All the time. Because I don't know when the expiration date's going to end because my trauma story, sometimes there was no end. Like it, the pain just kept hum coming and I, I had no control over making the story stop. Yeah. So my adult narrative was, fuck y'all, I'll make it stop. Do you know what the most beautiful thing is? It's actually on my phone. I typed it up um, and made it my screensaver. But it says, just so, my friend, because everything belongs. And this was taken from two different books. But in one, and I wish I could tell you what they are. And I, I can't take credit for this, <laughs> but I can't tell you the books. But one of them was saying um, there was this guy and... Everything that happened to him was just so, you know, like the stranger in front of line at Starbucks paid for his coffee. And instead of, instead of saying, oh, that's amazing or, oh, that sucks. It's just so. And his fucking tire blew out whenever he was leaving Starbucks and it was just so. And so anytime anything happened, the man would say just so, you know, because he didn't take anything. He didn't slap a meaning onto anything. It wasn't personal. It, it just, just was what it was. Yeah. And that everything belongs. What this person was saying, what they were writing was that, you know, no matter what happens in your life, what happens to you, like, everything belongs there. Oh. Right? Like, yeah. you're, like uh, oh, your husband fucking divorced you. It belongs. It's on your story, you know, to, you know evolving and and self-actualization you know it, it it belongs everything fucking belongs that's happening yeah. and it's it's nice to think of that like in life instead of like why is this happening why is this happening why me why me it belongs yeah. it just for yeah. whatever reason in my story it belongs right there so just so my friend because everything belongs thank you for sharing that that's really beautiful thank you so but so I'll give you a few more details. By all means. So, that was not when I left AA. That relationship severed, and with that sponsee, or with that sponsor, and, and with the boyfriend as well. And I tried very, very, very hard after that to kind of recapture that magic, right? That honeymoon phase. Yep. Yep. With AA. Yes, to yes. and him too, just to be honest, a few <laughs> times. <laughs> so neither one came back fully. And 
then I moved here to Bowling Green trying to get like a fresh start. Like, well, really I moved here, you know, to go to college, but thinking I'm going to have this fresh start in AA, I'll make all these new friends and fall in love with all these meetings. And I just kind of never found my people. Mm -hmm. And like, I tried really hard. I showed up to stuff. I went to events. I participated. I did service work. I did all these things. And it was like, yeah, I had acquaintances and people like I was friendly with. And we always said hello to each other and stuff. But like, it was just, I mean, the calls just didn't really come my way, you know? And I think to me, I was back at my senior year of high school and wanted so desperately to not get kicked out of that group. Yep. And to fit in. So you held on to whatever you could. But it, it wasn't anybody's fault. It's just, it was so unhealthy for me. So it be. Yeah. Or so it is. So, yeah. 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 And so, and then COVID happened. And uh, yeah. all the meetings shut down. And like, I did Zoom meetings, but I honestly wasn't that engaged. What I noticed throughout this process was that there was a big part of me that felt happier, not in AA, not involved in it. And, you know, this was over a few years, period. you know, so that was back in 2020. Mm-hmm. And I remember I started talking to people about my feelings in 2021 because I kept thinking they were just going to pass. <laughs> I thought it was like any other relationship in this world. There's ups and downs. There's highs and lows. And you never stay super high and you never stay super low. You know, I mean, it, there's just waves. and But it never waved back to good. And um, I couldn't really find anybody who was having those same feelings or experiences. So I looked online and kind of started digging around at like other people's like just blogs and their stories and how they felt. And they pointed out a lot of things that, like, I also really agreed with. Yeah. Can you share a couple of those things? Yeah. So, um, so first of all, I think the first thing that really stood out to me was the feeling I had of nervousness, wondering, like, if people were still going to be in my life if yeah. I if I were to leave. Yeah. And I know I registered that as strange because it was like, well, you know, I've given so much of my time and myself and my energy to these people. Like, surely we have created this true life bond. But, you know, the truth of the matter is, like, this is a club. And when you decide you don't want to be a part of it anymore, a lot of people don't speak to you anymore. And I did that to people. I did that to people too. Same. And so um, I thought that that was very strange. And um, it was just seemed very weird that there was never a point in time where someone could be trusted to do something else except be in this, you know, in this group. And then another thing, it's like, okay, so... Bill Wilson, 
had this spiritual people who Bill Wilson. Bill Wilson is the founder of Alcoholics Anonymous. So every 12 step program is patterned after AA. That was the original. And that was by a man named Bill Wilson and Dr. Bob. They were just two fucking alcoholics who got divinely inspired and um, created this program. So, but Bill Wilson was also, I'll tell you what, who, who he really was. He also um, was, I mean, he cheated on his wife. I don't know any better way to say it. He was super unfaithful. He continued to um, cheat on his wife till the day he died. He also um, took hallucinogens, hallucinogenics. Did I say it right? That, yeah, yeah. Hallucinogenics. Um, and... Like, he just, like, didn't drink alcohol the rest of his life, and he came up with this program, and he wasn't really anybody, but he came up with this program, and not saying that the program isn't valid, but I am saying that it was just this drunk that came up with this, and so we all live and die by every single word that this person said, and then we also live and die by what Susie says, so, and but Susie is just... A cashier would save a lot. Kind woman, but, you know, I mean, she just she has five cats, and she's a cashier save a lot, and she ended up in AA because she actually drove her car into a Kroger storefront, right? To me, that's where we get into this, this all-or-nothing thinking is what saves us at some point. So the all-or-nothing thing, I can't trust my personal decisions. I have to rely on Susie. But technically, but Susie's just Susie. the same. Exactly. Susie's just the same as you or me or as Bill W. But I, they, they don't, like, I... Yeah, yeah, and if Susie is divinely inspired, then <laughs> it's not, that's not valid either, right? Because there already is the program. You can't make any changes. You can't have any new interpretations of it. It is just exactly the way it is. And that, that was very strange to me. And I also started to understand, like, who I have became, who I have grown up as, in Alcoholics Anonymous while I've managed to stay sober and get a great job and build healthy relationships and all these fun things, I've also become someone who is extremely anxious all the time, who is afraid to fulfill life goals because of alcohol, even though she hadn't drank it in eight years, seven years. Six, you know, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. It's like, I'm still not making these life decisions because I need to think about my alcoholism first. And mm -hmm. it's like, didn't I spend 15 fucking years obsessed with alcohol? Mm -hmm. Like, I want to move on with my life. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, it's like you won't move past this, which, it's like, you won't evolve. But that's not really how humans work. Like, we, we do learn from our, we can, it is possible. Yeah. And I, I think that's what makes AA so successful for some folks is maybe that, that all or nothing thinking is what has kept them alive this long. But I think, or thus far, but I think sometimes there is a world. Like, like I like how you've been, I feel like, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but like the way you're framing this is it worked until it didn't. And I hate the, well, so for me, and I can't speak for anybody else, and it may work for a lifetime for other people. Sure. But so. Yes. What, what I found for me is that, like, I, I had emotional damage that I needed to deal with 
before like I could truly start living authentically as my true fucking self and really got free from the fears and the bullshit inside my head that keep me stuck mm-hmm. energetically, keep me stuck. And so, I, I, you know, that didn't, it doesn't help to like, you know, why do we keep looking at ourselves as like sick people? We're these sick people that need this constant treatment. Mm-hmm. And, but like, I'm, I'm not a sick person, Casey. Like yeah. I am medicated and you know, I'm like, yeah. I meditate and I have a, <laughs> a therapist that I see all the fucking time, you know, and I process my fucking feelings yeah. and I journal and I try to get outside and get vitamin D and get some exercise. Like, I try to, you know, put good things in my body. Like, I love who I am and taking care of myself. Yeah. And that's who I am today. And I don't need to be working a program, you know, the lingo. Yeah. To to do that. And I don't know. I venture to wonder if there are a lot of people who may be like me and just, you know, I mean, I remember thinking the scariest thing in the world was to not be an AA. That terrified the shit out of me, the thought of that. Because you'll end up dead. Because you'll they say you'll end up dead. Yeah. You'll die without that group. And, you know, I, I come back to what you're saying, and maybe that is true for some people. I don't think it's true for me. I think that, you know, maybe it was true at one point in time, but everything evolves, including myself. We are complex critters. Yeah. And, you know, I, and so when I have new clients come in who tell me, um, like, oh, I work a 12-step-based program, I would like, hell yeah. Or if they're like, oh, I have addiction is- issues and I'm not sure the best way, you know, I still offer 12 steps as an option. If, if you are like gung ho, like this is how I'm staying sober and keeping my life on track. I will talk. Let's that, do it. Yeah. I'll talk that talk with you. We'll walk that walk. Cause I do think it worked. I think I know it saved my life at one point in time. Yeah. And so, it, but, and so I, what I really hope doesn't happen is someone walks away from listening to all of this and it's like, damn, they fucking hate it. <laughs> Cause it's not it's it. It's not true. And like, I still have, so, I still have people in my life who are like, so what I did when I left, when I made that decision, um, because it's not like, let's be clear. It's not one of those things. You can just take it as you need it. You're all in or you're all out, you know, with them. And so, um, I had some conversations with some people who were important to me, you know, to explain to them how I was feeling and where I was at and to let them know that, you know, they were important to me and I still wanted to have a relationship with them. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, I still have relationships with people who are in AA and fucking thriving and yeah. loving their life. And yeah. like, I'm so happy for them for that. Um, but I think the, my biggest takeaway in my eight years in AA is the thing that meant the most to me and that has served me the most is I always told the truth. Like, even in AA, when I had done something that, like, I didn't think someone was going to approve of, instead of, like, lying and pretending like I had just to appease them, I always just told the truth. And that became 
it is part of my identity. And so like, I still stand true to that today. And I felt like, you know, if I'm not going to be in this program anymore, I still want to show up for myself and be honest with myself and those around me that I care to have the conversation with um, and just, just keep saying the truth. And this is my truth right now. My truth is that I did not feel fulfilled. I saw AA in a different way and I couldn't fucking unsee it. Yeah. And it's also very strange that none of this shit is like regulated by a professional. Right? So so Susie, the, the cashier at Save a Lot, who, you know, has been sober for 30 years, um, who has not have a drink, had a drink for 30 fucking years. Um, where was I going with that thought? Well, it's not with professional. And, yeah, there's, I yeah. mean, you can go and we can go meetings and talk about, you know, whatever we want. And there's no one there to like dictate any of it except for a alcoholic who may or may not be drinking, um, who may or may not be fucking medicated. Who may or may not have good intentions. I've seen that. Yeah. Yeah. It's certainly not in the realm of professional help. Well, and I think too, you know, you say, well, even a, like someone who's, who's not a professional doing it. I mean, I'm not even sure, but like, I'm, I'm a weirdo when it comes to, I need the professionals who take care of me in my life. To at least somewhat look like me to feel that validation. Whether if they also came from poverty, they also came from rural Kentucky. Yeah. They all like they had some some huge deficit in their life, um, which is kind of so. I, I I can see like the appeal. I I think it was who the it, it's this guy who does a lot of like uh, sex addiction work. He described one time like twelve step meetings are like you know a bunch of fucked up people who didn't get validation and love in their life, and they can all join up together and. And feel that love and go on and live their own lives. And, and like, I was like, oh, yeah, that's so cool. But then at the same time, that's the problem is we have traumatized people on top of traumatized people. I think, and, and like, I think the kicker with me is when I was trying to get in with a, a trauma therapist. And I said, yeah, I have a history of addiction. And I, I was telling her that the first time we met for my biopsychosocial assessment, I was like, and it's really scary. And she paused and she said, are you really an addict or just a kid who didn't have their needs met growing up and you didn't know how else to meet them other than to find coping skills that maybe the rest of society and you don't seem as like healthy. Right. And maybe you use those coping skills in a way that wasn't healthy, but maybe you're in a place now that you don't have to. And I think... A 12 steps program is what got my head out of my ass that kept me from furthering the cycle of injuring myself. And I also think there was a great coping skill at one point in time and I just don't need it to attack. Right. So, yeah, because it at least, like, got our brains unfogged enough. Yeah. You know, yeah. to, like, learn how to, like, live. And if people, like, I think that's beautiful that people can still feel that. If people can go to a 12 steps meeting and feel unconditional love. That's so awesome. Yeah, it is. Yeah, agree. Agree. And, like, don't get me wrong. Like, there are people I definitely felt unconditional love from and still continue to do. Sure. You know? 
I think of the person who's like, oh man, I, I relapsed, I binge drank for a whole night, but I'm sober right now. And you know, I've been sober for a week now. I've went back to meetings, but you know, that, that repetitive cycle of self-fulfilling prophecy. If I tell myself enough times that I'm a sick person, I'm going to act so. Right. Right. No. Yeah. I totally believe that. And then, you know, of course, we have these standards for them to meet to tell them if they've been successful or not. And it is complete abstinence, right? And so, like, if they don't complete that, and, like, they come, they show up for, like, 10 years every morning, <laughs> pick up another white chip, which is means surrender, which means that's your first, you, don't, you just want to try to be sober. That's what that chip means. And no one ever says, hey, Ronald, I feel like you're not getting what you need from this. Have you thought about smart recovery? Have you thought about, um, refuge uh, recovery, re Dharma recovery? Yeah. Uh, uh, what's the maintenance one that well, just prove like, yeah. Marijuana maintenance. Like, have you tried it? Like, let's see. I mean, cause you're not getting anywhere here. Right. Right. But we don't say that to people because, it's also in their minds the only way, it's the only path of recovery. Yeah. And it has to be total abstinence. Because yeah. that's what, like, that's the only thing that can keep some people, at least they perceive, I don't know what the reality is. See, because, and I don't know either, Casey. <laughs> and that's why I'm always like. And I was in it for eight years. <laughs> and I still don't know what the reality is. <laughs> if it works for you, that's so cool. Yeah. If you can do something that doesn't harm you or other people. And, and if it's working and you're happy with it, keep fucking doing it. Right. And I, but I wasn't in that place anymore. <laughs> I wasn't happy anymore. Yeah. I mean, you know, we evolve and we move on. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I you know, yeah. I, I had a conversation with a friend who I was in AA with back in my hometown in e mm -hmm. We were really close and, um, she's kind of veered off a little bit too. And, you know, she said, whenever I told her that I was leaving, she said, um, you know, I, I don't think of like, what I've done as leaving AA. She said, you know, I feel like I've just kind of transitioned into more. She was like, my, my perception of everything has kind of changed, especially, you know, my whole power, power concept. And she was like, you know, I drop into meetings to see the homies and, you know, here and there, but like, other than that, it's not really prevalent in my life. And that was super cool. Cause she's decided I'm just going to use this as I need it. And I'm not leaving anything. I'm just growing it to look like more. And I, I really, I loved that. You know, there's this. And I love that for her that yeah. she's in a situation where it can just be that. Yeah. And I mean, not saying that it couldn't with me, but I just, that didn't feel true to me. Yeah. That felt like I was lying. It felt like I was lying. I can't tell you how long it had been since I walked into a meeting because I really, thoroughly enjoyed it and wanted to be there mm -hmm. as opposed to trying to make other people comfortable. You know? Yeah. They, you know, where are you? Where are you going to come? You going to come? You know, da, 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 da. And it was like, you know, it was my own shit that yeah. said I have to appease these people and show up. Yeah. But like my truth was, is that like I wasn't doing it for me and I hadn't done it for me in a really long time. Yeah. Any final thoughts? I don't know. I mean, I don't think so. Like, 
I think it, it's really important to also like understand that this was something so big and so fucking scary for me. And don't get me wrong, there's been like a total grieving process. And there's been moments of I felt shock and moments I felt betrayal and moments I felt sad and moments I felt like this was a mistake. I want to still be here. You know, all of these things like have, of course, like came up to me. But the beautiful thing about a choice is that you can always make a different one. It's not like we make choices and we're like doomed to die like that. No. Like, I don't think life's that serious. And I think AI is always going to be around. We'll always be around. So and if it works for you, yeah. then, I mean, fucking trudge, dude. Like, yeah, there's so there's so many good things to come out of AA. And if you decide like, to don't leave. Be scared. Yeah. <laughs> you don't have to be scared. If you decide to leave, it's not going anywhere. And the like, another thing is very you. good to question, I think, also is like your motives for wanting to leave a 12 step program. There you go. That's like, interesting. Yeah, Why? I think it's important because it's like not saying that you don't ever have to have an explanation for someone and you don't have to have an explanation for yourself. You have total autonomy here. You can be in recovery, out of recovery. You can define your own recovery. You can do all of these things any way that you want. But I think the danger sets in when the truth is that we just, you know, we just want to use heroin again. And these people are a buzzkill. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so if that's what's going on, and like maybe you're not finding relief from that NAA, I would definitely encourage you to try different paths. Including least harm, which we didn't really get around to, but I do just want to clarify, like, that is an option. And I, I see people in a professional and personal capacity where it's like, oh, I remember back in high school, you were, like, intravenously shooting up methamphetamine, and now you smoke pot every night and have a couple of beers Saturday night. Like, wow, you're not... And so, like, <sighs> yeah, and so amen to that, too. And, like, for sure, like... <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. So, and and I I think you know the idea of AA is that we're not supposed to have this monopoly on recovery, right? We're not invested. We don't care how you get sober. You just get sober. But that's really not the case. And you'll see all kinds of memes and stuff about people on Suboxone and oh, you know gosh. all of that stuff. But sure. like for me, like. If, if you're using Suboxone and, you know, your motives are to, you know, treat your heroin addiction or whatever, like, you can tell me that. Because I will fucking validate you. You know? Yeah. If you're using hair or using, if you're using uh, Suboxone, Suboxone to, to, like, I don't know, keep custody of your kids and keep a stable job because opiates are a fucking bitch then good for you a hundred percent hundred percent we can't just fucking applaud people when they recover in a way that suits us yeah and i think like you know there's not one therapy theory because not one therapy theory works for every single client so much. there's cbt dbt rebt sft uh, emdr uh prolonged exposure therapy um i meant to tell you this <laughs> i saw this technique the other day on fucking tiktok and i've been using it and i am living for it what is it so you 
you're supposed to set an alarm on your phone for like three times a day for every day at the same time. I did not do that. I've just been doing this when I think of it. So I've had to fucking screenshot an emotions wheel. Dude, feelingswheel.com is my fucking favorite place in the entire world. So, so this may be the same thing. So you, um, you, you get out the feelings wheel and you figure out how am I feeling. And what blows my mind is how many feelings can all exist at once. Oh, my God. You know, I can feel super um, isolated and lonely and betrayed and at the same time feel so much hope and excitement or even calm. I mean, you know what I'm saying? Like it can all fucking exist together. So you, you pick out all of the feelings that you have and then you try to find three places in your body where you can feel this. So like, mm. are your palms sweaty? Do you have a rumbling in your stomach? Um, does your chest feel tight when you start to take in a deep breath? Where do you feel, where, where, what do you feel? And then the third question is, what can I do right this second to feel better? And so like the other night that looked like I felt really cold mm -hmm. and that looked like running a hot bath, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, the other day I did it at work and what I could do was I looked up a YouTube video that was literally eight minutes long where she did um, neck exercises, like neck yoga, where you can just do it at your desk at work or whatever, just to like release yes. some stress from your neck or whatever. Um, that's, yeah, I love therapy. <laughs> I fucking love therapy. I, I love I it so much. It saves my life all the time. My therapist saves my life. Like wait, I, wait, 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 no, 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 no. You save your life. By choosing today to go talk yeah. to a therapist. Felt. Felt. Yeah. Rather For than sure. go and validate yourself or hang around people who. But so that yeah. choice, that relationship is so fucking monumental to me. Sure. Like it's literally at the cornerstone probably like of my weeks. Do you know? I do. I have two. It's everything. It's everything. <laughs> I have one that only has availability every other week. I wish I could see her more often than I have one once a week. Um, I, I, yeah. No, I do know. Yeah. I do two different modalities of treatment with each to conquer two different goals. But yeah, it's... Because um, I also love the... What's <laughs> what's the one? The um, CBT? Yeah. Uh, smart recovery? Is that what... Or are you talking just CBT in general? Just... Cognitive behavioral therapy, yeah. like that, like I, something my my um, therapist has taught me. I actually have an app that does it, but it's just like you rank how you feel, like just like a little doctor's smiley face thing. You rank how you feel, and then you talk about um, the thoughts that you're having, and then you reframe. And you write it out because it's a lot easier. Yeah. yeah. I like that a lot. Like, well, it's a little bit more organized. Yep. So your brain doesn't pop off somewhere else. But you reframe those thoughts instead of like, oh, you know, Casey's not a good friend to me because she didn't answer my phone call. You know, instead of it being that, it turns into um, Casey is busy. And I have so many opportunities to do so many cool things with this fucking hour that I have free. You know, yeah. I mean, because it's all life is, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's all it is, is how you see it. 
Perception. Yeah. Dude, I love you. I love you too. Oh my god. This was fun. <laughs> Dude, this is thank you. Thank you. Um no, I think you have a beautiful story and I think it's kind of funny. Your trauma story and my trauma story led us at a mutual friend's apartment uh, many moons ago. Serendipity. It's weird. Yeah. Thanks, dude. Thank you. So much fun. We did so good. <laughs> I have to be honest. I've been very stressed out since recording the interview with Missy. And it's not because Missy did anything wrong. And it's not because I said anything wrong. There is one part that I am a little bit critical about myself. And it was at the very beginning when I was talking about like that all or nothing thinking. And I think I was very on board to all of a sudden throw 12 steps completely under the bus. Like there for a millisecond. It was almost like I had forgot. And I think that goes to show how much I personally do feel hurt by the 12 steps program. I think that the 12 steps program has such amazing features, but unfortunately, like everything else in the world, like specific types of therapy modalities, we have to look at like the parts that are healthy and the parts that could use some adjustment. And I think to, you know, an OA sponsor who was condemning me for relapsing on a you know, protein shake. And I think that's when it hit me that maybe 12 steps isn't for behavioral addictions. And I remember that becoming my disengagement with 12 steps. And so when Missy had first reached out to me and told me that she was considering leaving 12 steps, I remember that feeling of camaraderie and confusion and fear that if supporting that decision or anyone's decision to leave 12 steps, like I was being a bad person. And I think just for the point of complete transparency in this, I have to acknowledge that my job, I've had several jobs in the substance abuse field community or addiction community. You know, I worked at a very fancy intensive outpatient center in Nashville, Tennessee, where it wasn't 12 steps like strictly, but it was, uh, it was very endearing to the notion of complete abstinence being the only option to maintain and be considered to be progressing in the program. And I saw it work for some people and I saw some people it didn't. I saw some people, you know, two days before graduating our program relapsing. So that is a thing. And I think of, you know, it just hurts. Like this whole episode, it, like it hurt and it felt like, like I was doing something wrong. You know, I also, I worked at a facility that was 12 steps driven. You know, the things we were to teach the clients, the patients at the hospital, it was 12 steps. Like their homework assignments were steps one, two, and three. And then four, five, and six, if they continued further on after that. The point is, like, I don't have the words because I think I'm still personally recovering from some of the damage that I feel like I incurred in 12 steps. And I do think that I'm a little bit sideways on it. And I have to acknowledge that some people are doing great. 
And it's the same possibilities. I love EMDR and I feel like I'm a great EMDR therapist. And at the same time, I have to acknowledge people's stories when they tell me, hey, I worked with someone who did EMDR and they didn't do a great job. And I think it fucked me up worse than it did when I first began. Because that's some people's stories too. So Missy was such a light in reminding me my experience in 12 Steps wasn't entirely terrible. If anything, the very first sponsor I ever had I haven't spoke to her in a long time, but she was such a light in my life and proved to me and helped break for me like this, this weird trauma story and fear I have around women in authoritarian, authoritarian roles. I'm really grateful for her. And now that I'm talking about it, I feel like I should reach out to her. And I also have to acknowledge that wasn't my entire history there. I hope you understand this isn't a love story for 12 steps and this isn't a hate story for 12 steps either. And just somewhere in between. The last thing I just want to follow up on, it's this article uh, I found, and it's, it's dated by all means. It is dated. Uh, it's about eight years old. And it's an NPR article where they interviewed uh, the author of the book, The Sober Truth by Lance Dodes. He's a doctor. I'm just going to read the article verbatim, and you can take away from it whatever you so choose. So if you're curious, it's uh, author interviews with sobering science doctor debunks 12-step recovery. March 23rd, 2014. Since its founding in the 1930s, Alcoholics Anonymous has become part of the fabric of American society. AA and the many 12-step groups it inspired have become the country's go-to solution for addiction in all its forms. These recovery programs are mandated by drug courts, prescribed by doctors, and widely praised by reformed addicts. Dr. Lance Dodes sees a big problem with that. The psychiatrist has spent more than 20 years studying and treating addiction. His latest book on the subject is The Sober Truth, debunking the bad science behind 12-step programs in the rehab industry. Dodes tells NPR's Aaron Rath that 12-step recovery simply doesn't work, despite anecdotes about success. We hear from the people who do well. We do not hear from the people who don't do well, he says goes on to go to say the interview highlights on Alcoholics Anonymous's success rate. There's a large body of evidence now looking at AA success rate and the success rate of AA is between five and 10%. Most people don't seem to know that because it's not widely publicized. There are some studies that have claimed to show scientifically that AA is useful. These studies are riddled with scientific errors and they say no more than what we knew to begin with, which is that AA has probably the worst success rate in all of medicine. It's not only that AA has a 5 to 10% success rate. If it was successful and was neutral the rest of the time, we would say okay. But it's harmful to the 90% who don't do well. And it's harmful for several important reasons. One of them is that everyone believes that AA is the right treatment. AA is never wrong, according to AA. If you fail in AA, it's, that it's you that's failed. On why 12-step programs can work. The reasons that the 5 to 10% do well in AA actually doesn't have to do with the 12 steps themselves. It has to do with the camaraderie. It's a supportive organization with people who are on the whole kind to you, and it gives you a structure. Some people can make a lot of use of that. And to its credit, AA describes itself as a brotherhood rather than a treatment. So as you can imagine, a few people given that kind of setting are able to change their behavior at least temporarily and maybe permanently. But most people can't deal with their addiction which is deeply driven by just being in a brotherhood. On a psychological approach to addiction, 
When people are confronted with a feeling of being trapped, of being overwhelmingly helpless, they have to do something. It isn't necessarily the something that actually deals with the problem. Why addiction though? Why drink? Well, that's the something that they do. In psychology, we, we call it displacement. You could call it a substitute. When people can understand their addiction and what drives it, not only are they able to manage it, but they can predict the next time the addictive urge will come up because they know the kinds of things that will make them feel overwhelmingly helpless. Given that forewarning, they can manage it much better. But unlike AA, I would never claim that what I've suggested is right for everybody. But let's say I had nothing better to offer. It wouldn't matter. We still need to change the system as it is because we are harming 90% of the people. I read this with a heavy heart. For years, my income came off of being able to doubt 12 steps and, and be able to quote big book at people. And for the people who just kept coming back, who couldn't figure it out, I used to be one of those people who also thought that there was something wrong with them. You know, the big book talks about, well, maybe some people are just morally corrupt I'm probably butchering it now because it's been a hot minute since I have picked up a big book. I think the big book says like uh, 50% of people will succeed. 25% will relapse, but they will eventually succeed. And then 25% just suck. I mean, that's not what the big book says. The big book doesn't say that anyone sucks. But that's, you know, like 25% people just won't because they can't get the program. And the amount of shame that that does to people. I don't know, man. I think at the end of it, I feel fear in <laughs> like I'm afraid of what 12 step folks are going to have to say about this. And that's scary. Because I also, I'm, I feel like it's that meme situation of we have to admit when we feel like we've done something wrong. Well, wait, wait, wait. That is not what the meme says. But the meme says like, if you come from a better place and you understand more than perhaps you did before, it's okay to say you changed your mind. It's okay to say you were wrong. And maybe really that's what this podcast episode is. It's to all the people that I made it seem like 12 steps was the only option. I'm telling you, I understand maybe why it didn't work for you now. And for the people who eat and breathe and love 12 steps and it works for them. Listen, I love you and I will support whatever it takes for you to be able to live a life that you love. So, I always have a deep fear of being misunderstood, and there's a whole lot of personal anxiety with this whole episode, and I think I'm just going to keep running in circles trying to explain my point, point. and I think if you walk away from this thinking that I'm saying uh, 12 steps is wrong, maybe I am, and that's okay if that's your perception. I don't think I'm in the business of telling people what's right and what's wrong. And I think people get to be experts in their own life. That's what I'm about. And so in my own life, I know that 12 steps doesn't work for me. And maybe it does for you. And maybe it doesn't. And if it doesn't, uh, there's a whole world out there of other opportunities. Take good care. Love y'all so much. I am so sorry the audio is probably going to be the shittiest on this. I'm having to record some of it outside. Some of it was inside. Some of it was in a huge room. There's a big echo. I may set up a Patreon to hopefully eventually be able to afford some microphones one day. Who knows? We'll see what happens next. Uh, take the goodest of care. I hope you enjoy this beautiful summer weather. 
my Kentucky folk. Uh, love y'all and peace out.